0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information
1: about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. We're reading from the Gospel of Luke. Just one moment. I had it switched to John. You can stand. Luke chapter 14, and we're reading through uh, verse 1 through 11. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that is fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Well, Jonathan is, uh, is in London, and so Chance is going to be uh, preaching the word for us this morning. Um, Father, thank you for my friend chance. I pray that you would empower him. Uh, You you would uh, give him boldness and courage. And would you uh, preach through him this morning? Would you use him mightily? And as hearers of your word preached, Lord, would you change our hearts and draw us all close to you? In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you. So am I preaching on John 14 or Luke 14? because it's going to be short or really short, um, <laughs> depending on the, the answer to that. So, uh, years ago, after I graduated college, um, I went to a little bitty church down in Palmyra, Illinois, if you've ever heard of it, Blooming Grove Christian Church, and um, I had the privilege of, of my boss being a man named Fred, brilliant guy, very, very smart, super, super nice, And um, I got to work with him for about nine months before he went on to be a a professor at the college. And it really was some of the most impactful months of my life, like my love for Scripture today, my devotion to context today. It it comes from Fred. Well, during that time when I served under him, he told me a story. He said that um, years ago, whenever he was in college a friend, one of his good friends, invited him to serve as a groomsman in his wedding. And, you know, Fred was honored and, and thankful uh, that his friend had asked. him. so Fred showed up to the rehearsal on a Friday night, and um, the other groomsmen were there. But Fred said it was kind of an awkward situation. And I'm like, well, like, wh- why? You know, you, you had been invited and all that. And he said, well, none of us knew who the best man was. The, the, the friend had invited all these groomsmen there, of course, for the rehearsal, but he hadn't told them who was in what place. And, and Fred said that they all just kind of stood there like looking at each other, right? The, the, the groomsmen, they didn't know who was gonna be where, and the groom hadn't arrived yet, so they just stood there. Well, finally, one of the groomsmen, <clears throat> we don't know for sure, but he, he, we think he decided in his mind I'm the guy. Like, it has to be me, okay? And so one guy stepped to the front and assumed the position as they were getting ready to begin the rehearsal. He was the best man, right? And Fred, being the humble guy that he was, took his place at the end of the line, right? He, he didn't want to make any assumptions. Well, the groom finally showed up and entered the room, and he saw how all the men had lined up. And Fred said, you could just tell on his face that he was not happy. He walked straight over to Fred, who was at the end of the line, grabbed him by the hand, and led him to the front of the line. And then he pointed to the end of the line, where the guy who had self-righteously decided, hey, this is my spot, he pointed and said, you need to go here. You know, it's an, it's an interesting story, right? Not only is it a little amusing, you know, he, the guy was put in his place, but it's also enlightening. I tell this story because it's a story with, its, with a message, and I believe that that message finds its roots in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And the message is this. This is the, the main point that I'm going to hammer home over and over again this morning. True greatness comes from humility. Greatness doesn't come from self-importance or ego or arrogance or skill or gifts. True greatness comes from humility. You know, we had the text read this morning, Luke 14, verses 1 through 11. Before we jump into that, we need to back up and talk a little bit about Luke 13. Jonathan preached last week on that text. If you remember, maybe you weren't here, you, you may have read the chapter before, Jesus is asked a question. He's asked, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? That's in Luke thirteen twenty-three. Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And in response to that question, Jesus said that the door to heaven is narrow, implying, right, that a majority of people are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But then he closed that door-being-narrow illustration with this interesting, and and to me it's kind of mysterious, this little statement in verse 30. He said this, Some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. What does that mean? The last will be first and the first will be last. Well, for me, whenever I need clarity for a Bible verse, I've, I've got really one one scholarly work that I go to to begin, and that's the International Children's Bible, okay? I go get my boys' little kids' Bible because I'm like, man, I don't know what's being talked about here. Hopefully, this is down on my level, all right? This is what the International Children's Bible says for that verse. It, It reads this way, those who are last now will be first in the future, and those who are first now will be last in the future. I was like, okay, I think, I think I've got this, right? Jesus is saying those people while on earth who don't consider themselves to be special or, or important in the future will be seen as very special and very important. And conversely, those people who want to be seen as special and important right now, in the end, they will not be seen as special or important. So, it's with this in mind, Luke 13, verse 30, that I want to make a proposition to you regarding our text, Luke 14, 1 through 11. And here's the proposition. If we want to see what it means for the last to be first and the first to be last, we simply need to look at Luke 14, verses 1 through 11. If we want to see Luke 13, 30, last first, first last, if we want to see Luke 13, 30 in action, we look at the first 11 verses of Luke chapter 14. Hope that makes sense. I'm going to move forward even if it doesn't, but hopefully it makes sense. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into God's Word together. Lord, we're grateful for Your Word. I pray that You would open our minds here. Help us to to see the message that You have for us. Help us to, to listen to it. Help us to not forget it. I pray that it would weigh heavy on us. Create in us a desire To change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the text begins verse 1. One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So we'll pause there for a second. So chapter starts off with Jesus being invited to a dinner party, right, at the house of the ruler of a Pharisee. We learn pretty quickly, though, that this is not a friendly dinner invitation, right? It was a trap. The text says they wanted to watch him carefully. And not only is it plain right there in the text, the fact that a man with dropsy had been invited to the dinner party should tip us off that something suspicious was going on. How do we know this? The Pharisees would have never invited someone with an illness or an impurity like that to a dinner party. Pharisees didn't operate like that. They, under normal circumstances, would not have had somebody over like this. This man was invited to see what Jesus would do. They wanted to see how Jesus would respond. This was a pre-planned, well-crafted dinner ruse. Here's the deal, though. Jesus is God, right? He knew what they were doing. He knew their thoughts, so he posed a question. Look at verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers, which are just like experts in the law, kind of like the Pharisees. He responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So, so Jesus is like, he's like, all right, guys, listen, you're trying to, to trap me, but before you set your trap, let me ask you a question. Is it against the law for me right here, right now, on the Sabbath, to heal this guy? He's obviously hurting. He's obviously in pain. His legs are swelling. His ankles are swelling. He's going to have this condition for the rest of his life. Is it wrong for me to heal him today, now, on the Sabbath? Jesus knew what they were doing. They were trying to trap Jesus, and then Jesus set a trap for them. Now, some of us may read this and think like, all right, this is weird. Like, what's going on? What's the Sabbath? Why doesn't Jesus just heal the guy? Because he heals other people. Who cares if he heals on the Sabbath? Who cares what the Pharisees think? Here's the deal, though. There was a shared belief in Jesus' day among the religious leaders that offering help on the Sabbath was wrong. Now, where, where would they get that idea, okay? They saw helping someone on the Sabbath as work, and the Sabbath, as they understood it, a day of rest, was to be a day of no work. So they looked at helping somebody as work, and then they stood back and said, well, I can't do that because helping that guy is going to require effort on my part. That's work, and I don't want to dishonor God by working on the Sabbath, so I'm just not going to help the guy at all. It was goofy, right? Thankfully, Scripture teaches that the understanding that the Pharisees had was wrong. The Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest and worship, yes. And yeah, they weren't supposed to be like fixing stuff or doing chores on the Sabbath, you know, don't go and pull weeds in your garden, don't go fix that broken wheelbarrow. But here's the kicker, this whole no work on the Sabbath did not mean that you could ignore a genuine need on the Sabbath. If you saw someone struggling, you were absolutely supposed to lend a hand. These people who observed the sabbath the jews they were not to let the prohibition from working to stop them from helping but that's what the pharisees were doing they would see a genuine need on the sabbath and deny that genuine need on the sabbath and jesus asked the question that he did right here is it lawful for me to heal this man on the sabbath he asked that question in an effort to help correct their wrong view so what was their answer Look at verses 4 and 5. But they remained silent. So they didn't give an answer, but that was their answer, right? The rest of verse 4. Then he, Jesus, took him, the man with dropsy, and healed him and sent him away. And he, Jesus, said to them, the lawyers and the Pharisees, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. So Jesus asked the first question, right? And you could like hear the crickets in the room. Jesus was trying to push them towards compassion and conviction with that first question, but their hearts were hard. I mean you can picture the scene, right? Okay, they're at this this dinner party and Jesus asks the question and everybody kind of gets quiet cuz they want to see, you know, you can tell there's a battle going on between the religious leaders and Jesus and they want to see what the religious leaders have to say. And so Jesus is like waiting for an answer, knowing that one isn't coming. So you can picture him stand up, walk over to the man with dropsy. Take him by the hand, and then in front of your eyes, miraculously, supernaturally, without explanation, he heals the guy. Every eye in the room would have been on him. Now, make no mistake, Jesus wasn't doing this in an effort to to show off here. Jesus was doing this, one, to bring good to the man who was hurting, and two, to melt the hearts of stone that were in the Pharisees and the lawyers. I think Jesus was proving that he was God because only God could do something like that, right? You and I couldn't take somebody who has a serious illness by the hand and heal them on command. I think he was proving that he was God. And two, I think he was proving that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It wasn't work to help somebody on the Sabbath. It was good to help somebody on the Sabbath. And I love how Jesus is healing here. It required a response on the part of the Pharisees what were they going to do with this awesome display of power? Would they humble themselves and think, oh my gosh, guys, we have it all wrong. We are to do good on the Sabbath. Or would their hearts be hardened and they say, how can we shut this man up? And to help them think through this situation that's going on, You notice Jesus asked them a second question. I I, I love Jesus' logic here. He's like, all right, fine, listen. You didn't want to answer my first question. I'm going to give you a second question. And the second question is actually going to be even easier than the first question. You don't even have to think about a response for the second question because the right answer is the obvious answer. He's like, okay, are you guys ready? Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? So, Jesus gave this illustration, right? Let, let's think through it, okay? So, imagine that what Jesus described here actually happened, all right? One of the Pharisees, one of the lawyers, they wouldn't just watch their son walking towards a well and then fall in that well and then do nothing about it because it's the Sabbath, right? You, you, you can't picture a Pharisee like going over to the well and being like, sorry you fell in the well, Timmy. That was a Lassie reference. Did anybody get that? You're like, sorry, buddy. It, it, it's, it's the Sabbath, and it's going to be so much work to go back to the house and get a, get a rope and, and throw it down there, and then, like, you're really heavy. You're getting bigger, so it's going to be work if I have to pull you out of there, so just tread, tread water till tomorrow. No. A Pharisee wouldn't do that. A lawyer wouldn't do that. Nobody would do that. They would run to the well and do everything within their power to get their child out, even an ox out. Even if it was the Sabbath, it wouldn't matter. You see, Jesus' seemingly ridiculous story slash question here only served to prove the ridiculous position that the Pharisees and the lawyers were holding. His silly illustration proved how silly they were being, right? These men, these religious leaders, they needed to humble themselves before God. They needed to submit to the Lord. They had become hypocrites. They had twisted God's word so much, something intended for their good, and turned it into an instrument of destruction. They said, no, we can't help that guy. It's the Sabbath. God wouldn't want us to help that guy today because we'd have to lift a finger to work. So they didn't answer Jesus' first question. He asked a second question. What's their response? Look at verse 6. And they could not reply to these things. One of the things that struck me when I read verse 6 was, do you see how blinding sin is? The truth was right in front of them. It was obvious. It was as plain as day. It is good and right to help somebody who is in need, even if it's the Sabbath. But that's the problem with sin, right? The more that we do it, the more that we give ourselves over to sin, the more numb and calloused we become to the things of God. Things that used to break our heart before we were intertwined in sin now have little to no impact on us at all. You see, these Pharisees, these law experts, they were so sure of themselves. They had God's law, and they said, you know what? We're going to make a rule book that's actually bigger and fatter and more comprehensive than God's law, and we're going to lay that on top of God's law, and we're going to tell everybody that they better adhere to this. What they needed was humility. And Jesus, being the ever-wise doctor that he is, gave them the exact dosage that they required. And then uh, i love it in the next several verses continuing with this theme of humility jesus expands his focus right the conversation thus far at this dinner party has been between him and the pharisees and him and the lawyers jesus now in the next several verses expands it to the whole room he's got a story that he thinks everybody needs to hear look at verse seven now he told them a parable he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who has invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. This is extremely practical, right? We have something like this in our culture. You've been in a situation before like this where you're invited to a party or a meeting and you're still trying to to, to figure out where to sit, right? No matter the gathering, there is a social pecking order or ranking based on seat location. We'll have Ginger's family over, her mom, her dad, her brother, his wife, and their kids, and we've got a big dining room table with with two heads of the table, right? When Ginger's family is in town, and they, they haven't told me to do this, I dare not take a position Authority, right? Like to me, that is rightfully something that belongs to them. Nobody told me that. It's just, I guess, an understanding I think that we have in our culture, right? Well, the same was true in Jesus's day. Same thing was going on in his day. There was a battle to have the best seat in the house. Now, I want to help you understand this context a little bit. I've got a diagram that's going to show up here on the, the back wall this is how tables would have been set up back in jesus's day okay probably in the shape of a u like this and the host would have sat in the spot that was the red x okay that would have been the head of the table the seats of honor then would have been the seats located on the right and the left with the black x's and then everybody else would kind of file in around in the gray spots And then people would not sit on the inside. That's where servants could come in and give food to people and take food away, serve the people without disturbing them, okay? So this is probably the type of setting that Jesus was at when he was invited to this dinner party. So you you can imagine what's going on here, okay? People started arriving at the party, and they're kind of like looking, you know, as they come into the room, seeing if those two spots are open. And then they're like slowly, but maybe with some quickness, like trying to get to those spots, right? Well, to help you understand this, I, I want to pretend that each one of us is a person at this dinner party, okay? So, let me paint a picture for you. So, imagine that you step into the room with this table and this setup, and as you walk into this gathering, you, cr- you cross the threshold of the door, and you start to, like, strain your neck a little bit, right? You're, like, trying to see around the people to see if those two spots are open, and you think to yourself, oh, good. They're, they're still there. I mean, it, it would not have been acceptable for you to run to that place, right? That, that's just out of the question. So you look and you're like, oh, good, those two seats are open. Relief watches over you, washes over. And so you look around the room and, and you see some familiar faces, right? And some not so familiar faces. You see some people you like and you see some people that you don't like. And, and you see this one particular fellow and you're like, oh, good night, I did not like that guy. I really hope he doesn't get one of those seats and then I'm in one of the lower seats. Or, or you see another gal and you're like, I, I know what type of person she really is. I'm going to be so mad if she takes my spot because I, I deserve one of those seats. And as you, as you work the room, you know, you're making small talk and you're like inching closer and closer to one of those prize spots. And, and you are having conversation with people along the way. Hello, how are you? How's your family? Here's the deal, though. You know that you don't really care about the conversation, you know that you don't really care about these people. Your goal is to get to that prime spot. You are using each one of those people that you talk to as a lily pad to get to where you want to be. So you half-heartedly mingle your way through and you make it. Victory's yours, right? You, you made it to the seat. Everybody else is stuck in their lowly seats, and here you are basking in the glory and honor of the prized seat. You're the top dog, and you got the top seat. And now that you're seated, you've got the whole evening ahead of you, right? All these people are going to be looking up the table towards you with this mix of like awe and envy, like, dang, I wish I would have gotten that seat. And then you, for the rest of the evening, get to look down the table at them with your sense of superiority. And at that moment, the host walks in the room. And very, very briefly, you flash this like quick, self-assured smile. You're like, man, I did it. He is going to be so happy to see me sitting right here next to him. I deserve this. He's going to be thrilled. Here's the deal though, his expression doesn't match your expectation. He doesn't look at you with a smile on his face. He walks down the table to somebody in a less esteemed seat. He guides them by the hand to the place where you are seated. And he, he looks at you with this expression of disappointment and just gravity of the situation, and emotions for you to take that man's seat, so that he can take your seat you're humiliated, right? You, you begin to turn red. You can feel it. Not only have you been slapped with shame, but you've been slapped with shame in a room with all these other people. You believed that that seat was yours by right. You believed that you deserved it, but the master of the house came and put you in your place. You see... I think we can only begin... I, I, I told that story because of this. I think we can only begin to understand. I think we can only scratch the surface of what's going on here because we don't live in an honor and shame-based culture like Jesus did. To sh- be shamed in a way like this would have been absolutely devastating, not just for the day, but maybe forever. This shame-filled guest in this parable... He had overestimated his importance. And because of it, this shame-filled guest fell hard. So I think it's fair to say, all right, so this guy did not respond properly. What would have been the best way to respond in a social situation like this? Well, we see that in verses 10 and 11. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, I think it's tempting to read the end of this story here and think that Jesus is just like giving you a lesson on social etiquette, right? But that's truly not what this story is about. I don't think that's the point. I think the heart of this section is found in verse 11. We are to choose humility over self-exaltation. In all things, choose humility over self-exaltation. If we try and make ourselves first, God will make us last. But if we choose to humbly submit, God will lift us up. You see, these 11 verses here, it's not truly about the Pharisees or the lawyers and the Sabbath and etiquette at a dinner party. It's not truly about that. These verses, I think, are about our standing before God. I think that's what these verses teach us, where we stand before the Lord. Those people who recognize their own sinfulness, those people who are humble, those people who recognize their own flaws and their own limitations, those are the people that God will exalt. Those who don't, though, those who are self righteous and arrogant like the Pharisees and the lawyers, they will fall. That's the core of the gospel. That's the core of the kingdom. Think back to the beginning of our time together. Remember, this all started with that question Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And then Jesus answered, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. You see, I believe that what we just saw play out here in Luke 14 is a display of last and first happening right before our eyes. Do you want to know what it means to strive to be first while here on earth? Look no further than the arrogant Pharisees. Look no further than those who altered scripture to suit their own agenda or look around at the dinner party at those people who are scrambling around like snobs trying to get the best seat in the house conversely though if you want to know what it looks like to be last here on earth look no further than Jesus look no further than the one who stopped to help somebody in need Look no further than the one who encouraged in all situations humility, respect, and courtesy. I think here in these verses we find serious encouragement towards humility. I've got just four questions here that I want you to answer. You don't don't answer out loud. I just want you to reflect on them internally. I think this is going to help you gauge where you're at on the humility-arrogance scale, okay? Here's the first question. Do you ever catch yourself thinking that you're better than others because of your accomplishments, your education, your knowledge, or your experiences? The next question. When somebody tells you that you've done a good job on something, do you take all the credit for yourself? Or are you willing to acknowledge the contribution of others? Or how about this, when you're talking with someone, are you more focused on talking about yourself than you are genuinely listening to what the other person has to say? This last one's a big one. When you are wrong and make a mistake, are you willing to admit that quickly and ask for forgiveness? You see, here's the deal, if you answered any of those questions to the negative, if you have any feelings of superiority when you are around fellow man, it is guaranteed that you feel this way towards God. For if we lack humility in our earthly relationships, that arrogance has already spilled into our spiritual lives. Our unwillingness to lower ourselves before others mirrors our unwillingness to submit to God himself. But here's the good news. Praise be to God that we have Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of humility. Not only did he show us how to interact with fellow human beings, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, he exemplified and personified humility. He sacrificed himself on the cross in our place He was God Almighty, the creator of the universe. And yet he came to earth to die as a criminal. And and not just die for the sake of dying, but to take our place, to be our substitute, to die on the cross in our place, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, our wretchedness, our pride, our arrogance. No, he looks at us and he sees Christ and his perfection. We are the one who have committed these cosmic crimes of arrogance and pride and selfishness. But Jesus took our place so that we might be seen as righteous, so that we might be exalted just as Christ was exalted. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 read this way, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And so here's the question that we struggle with this morning. Will we humble ourselves in this life and be exalted by God in the next Or will we exalt ourselves in this life and be humbled by God in the next? True greatness comes from humility. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this lesson on humility. This is an earthly story that teaches us a heavenly truth. God, help us to embrace humility with those around us, and God, give us humility so that we recognize who You are and are standing before You. May we follow Jesus' example of selflessness and service. It's in His name we pray.